0: Can you think of something that was worth the wait? Uh, is there anything in your life that you wanted but that you, you had to wait for? Uh, when the time came and you finally received your your heart's hope, wasn't it worth it? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you something that I can wait for. I can wait for dessert. Uh, go ahead, you let that apple pie cook. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll wait. And then when it comes out of the oven, and I put that generous slice in a bowl because I'm gonna have an inordinate amount of ice cream with it. Uh, when, when I take that first glorious bite, I can say to myself, this, this was worth the wait. Waiting for that hot apple pie is worth it. I'm not gonna give up on that wonderful hope. We, we can wait with great patience for the most trivial but delicious things in this world, like apple pie. But why, why is it so hard to wait and really to not give up on one of the most glorious promises of our faith? Why is it so hard to wait and not give up on the promise that our dear Savior, that Jesus is coming back? to gather His people to His side, and to judge all unrighteousness and wickedness. I think, I think it is because, I think this is hard, because we fail to remember the certainty of Jesus' promise. We, we are certain, or at least I am, that I will receive that hot apple pie. I've seen it go into the oven, and I know that what goes in must come out. Uh, moreover my wife has promised me apple pie and she keeps her promises I can trust her how much more can we trust our God how much more can we trust our father who has not only promised us a home in glory but revealed the certainty of that promise by sending us his son what is more, while Jesus was on earth, He taught His disciples that His presence on earth guaranteed that He would come again in power and glory. In Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus, He reminds us, He teaches us that His kingdom has come and that it will come in full when He returns. He calls us to trust Him, to to not lose heart and to wait with great patience for His return. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to open your Bibles, to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We're going to begin there in verse 20. If you're using one of the Bibles uh, provided, then you can find the, the beginning of our passage on the bottom, I think, of page 876. 876, That. The chapter numbers are the larger numbers there in the text. And the verses, which I'll be mentioning often in our time together, they're the smaller numbers. So Luke chapter 17, we're to begin in verse 20. While we're preparing to dive into that, let's think about what's happened so far in Luke's gospel. We're now in the last third of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Jesus' his final destination on earth. It's the place where He will complete His earthly mission for the salvation of sinners. And as we'll be reminded of today in our text, for Jesus, this mission means that He must be rejected, that He must suffer, that He must be crucified and killed, and that He must be buried and raised from the grave in victory over sin and death. Jesus, He predicts the future. He predicts His death. Jesus is consciously, voluntarily, obediently, and deliberately walking to His death because He wants to secure eternal life for His people, those who put their trust in Him. Since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus has been walking along this road to Jerusalem teaching His disciples, the crowd, and the Jewish religious leaders about the nature of the kingdom of God. He invites broken and bedraggled sinners like you and me to enter into His kingdom by faith. Our study last week included one such example of that glorious truth. In Luke chapter 17, verses 10 to 19, Jesus healed ten lepers. And one of those lepers returned to give thanks to Jesus. And that's when Jesus graciously proclaimed, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. That poor leper had been saved and welcomed into Jesus' kingdom. And having just displayed the power of the kingdom, Jesus then turns to answer a question offered by fellow travelers on this road. You'll notice there in verse 20 of Luke 17 that Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And what follows then is Jesus' answer to that question. He wants to teach his disciples how they're to live in light of the final coming of the kingdom. And if I had to boil down Jesus' teaching in this section of scripture that we're Uh, studying together this morning I had to boil it down into a single sentence and this would be it the kingdom has come and is coming therefore believe and keep believing that's the whole point of this text the kingdom has come and is coming therefore believe and keep believing we're going to look at our passage together this morning in two sections under two headings which I trust will come as no surprise to you First, the kingdom has come and is coming. And the second point, therefore believe and keep believing. Let's uh, let's take a look at our first point. The kingdom has come and it's coming. And as we do, uh, let me read for us Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, The kingdom of God is coming, is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day... When Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all likewise just as it was in the days of Lot they were eating and drinking buying and selling planting and building but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed on that day Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken... And the other left and they said to him where Lord he said to them where the corpse is there the vultures will gather Well, when the Pharisees when a, a particular group of religious leaders among the Jewish people when the Pharisees asked Jesus about the coming of the kingdom of God they were asking a question that was really right up Jesus alley uh, since the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel Jesus is mentioned something about the kingdom of God in almost every chapter and often more than once. Not only were the Pharisees asking Jesus about something that was kind of in his wheelhouse, uh, they were also asking a question that from their vantage point mainly concerned the future. In in other words, they thought that the kingdom of God was still a reality to come in the future. Sadly, the, the popular belief among first century Jews was that the coming of the kingdom of God would be marked by a political and military revolution. The, the Jews of Jesus' day thought that their overlords would be overthrown and that a king would reign on David's throne in Jerusalem. And given their present experience of oppression at the hands of the Romans, their future orientation to the coming of the kingdom is really entirely understandable. This was understandable, and yet it was also incomplete. It was incomplete because the Old Testament also offered other signs of the kingdom's arrival. We need only think about Isaiah chapter 35 verses 4 through 6 where we read behold your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and tongue of the mute sing for joy. As we have read throughout the gospel of Luke what has happened in Jesus' ministry, all of those things have happened. In Jesus' ministry, in Jesus Christ, God has come in the flesh. He has come to save His people. He has opened ears and eyes. He has healed the lame and the mute. Indeed, just before our very passage, Luke mentioned this question. Uh, this question from Jesus. Just before this, there was this healing of a leper. So, do you see the first thing that Jesus says in response to the Pharisees? question about when the kingdom of god would come that the first thing that jesus says is this my dear pharisees the kingdom of god has come it is present among you it is in the midst of you how could it be in the midst of them well the king the kingdom is present wherever the king is present and incontrovertible ev- incontrovertible evidence of this has been piling up over these last 17 chapters jesus is going going to answer their questions about the future but before moving on to future concerns Jesus makes plain that the kingdom actually has come. Now we need to to pause and, and, and reflect on something about Jesus teaching concerning the kingdom in, in, in the New Testament particularly in the Gospels what Jesus reveals and has revealed in the Gospel of Luke is that the kingdom actually comes kind of in stages. it is here. And yet it is near, and it is still to arrive in the distant future. It has come, and it is coming. Its present arrival and its future arrival are connected with the critical junctures of Christ's work, of the King's work. It arrives with Jesus' arrival, it arrives in his incarnation. That's why Jesus says here in verse 21 that the kingdom of God is, is in their midst, he is there in their midst. Still, Jesus says elsewhere, that his kingdom will advance in his resurrection and ascension and the outpouring of the spirit and the preaching of the gospel by his apostles. I think that's what Jesus meant back in Luke chapter 9, verse 27. And the kingdom will, will come. It will also be brought in its final form when the king returns in judgment, which is what Jesus is referring to in verses 22 through 24 uh, and in verse uh, 26 to To verse 37 of this chapter. That is what we will come to learn about. The coming of the kingdom of God from Jesus preaching throughout the Gospels. As well as from other New Testament writers. That it has come. And it is coming. And that it's connected with the critical junctures of Jesus' work. Even before Jesus tells the Pharisees. And and really the others listening in that the kingdom is in their very midst. Jesus tells them that they're looking actually in the wrong place for the coming of the kingdom. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is is not coming in ways that can be observed, what He is saying is that you shouldn't be looking for for signs in the sky which will portend or predict the future. Uh, The Greek word that Jesus uses there for the word observed is actually related to astrological phenomena. So don't look for signs in the heavens. You you can't observe the, the kingdom of God in that way. You've got your eye on the wrong thing. And if this was true in Jesus' day, how much more true is it in our day? Why were so many people fascinated with the blood moon thing, when Jesus has told us that we're not to look to astrological phenomena? Don't listen to someone who says, look, here it is, or there. The Pharisees were looking to the heavens when the king had come to earth. He was in their midst and they were missing it. They were missing the fact that the kingdom of God had come and was present in their very midst. And after making plain that the kingdom of God had come and was in their very midst, Jesus qualifies this teaching further. Yes, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God has come, but there's also a sense in which the kingdom of God has yet to come in full. You can see this qualification really in verses 22 through 24, where Jesus turns to his disciples and explains that he has a future day in which he, as the triumphant Son of Man, will return in an unmistakable fashion. That title, Son of Man, you see there, it's a a reference to a messianic figure uh, depicted in the book of Daniel. And Jesus is saying, hey guys, I'm that messianic figure. I am the Son of Man. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, we read, I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of the heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. See, in verse... 22 Jesus is saying to his disciples look brothers and sisters. I know that you're looking forward to that day That day when my kingdom comes in full. I know that you're longing for it Please know this when the kingdom of God comes in its full and final form it will be unmistakable You won't need anyone to tell you look there or look here. It's going to be like lightning flashing across the sky Now, because I am strange, uh, and I love to do strange things, one of the things I love to do is watch storms. So whenever there's a storm, I try to find the largest window in my house, or if I'm really excited, I'll open the door and stand there. And also because I'm raising weird people like me, uh, my children will sometimes kind of collect around me and, and watch the storm with me. And then suddenly... What will happen in a storm is lightning will flash across the sky, and all excited will say, "Did, did you see that? Did you see?" And my kids would go, "Yeah, yeah, Dad, I, I saw that." Like I didn't need to tell them. I didn't need to ask that question. It was so obvious, right? That's what the second coming of Jesus is going to be like. Everyone is going to see it. No one will miss it. No one will need it to be explained to them. So, brothers and sisters, uh, you, you don't need preachers, or perhaps we should call them false predictors to try to coordinate astrological signs or political currents and trends to tell you when the Son of Man, when Jesus, is going to come. His coming is going to be unmistakable and impossible to miss. So let me encourage you actually to take Jesus seriously when he says don't listen to them. Don't don't do it. Jesus elsewhere said that no one knows the date or the hour. So anyone who is trying to coordinate the time of Christ's return is listening to someone other than Jesus. They're listening to something other than the Bible. And you, taking Jesus seriously, shouldn't listen to them. Verse 25 reminds us that Jesus is at a particular point in time when he is saying this. He is telling us that there is a day of judgment that he must face before that final day of judgment. Before the day of his return, he must face a day of suffering. And notice that the language of necessity really there in verse 25. Read Luke chapter 70 verse 25 again. Jesus said, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. You see here, Jesus is looking forward to His cross work. He is looking forward to what is going to happen at the end of this road that He's walking on in Jerusalem. He knows what He must do in order to save His people. Final judgment on the sins of God's people must be brought forward in time to His day. And He must suffer by bearing the wrath of God for the sins of His people on the cross. Jesus is only granted the the right to return and judge the world in righteousness because He underwent the cross and was raised from the grave. Now friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I want you to grasp this. If you have turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus, then what you need to know is that Jesus has borne the eschatological, the final and full wrath of God against your sin on the cross. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, your sin has been judged at the cross. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ then the final judgment of God on your sin has already been rendered in history. This is what Jesus suffered for His people. He suffered the eschatological, the end time wrath of God for His people. So did He suffer for you? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then friend, I want to urge you to come to Jesus and to place your faith in Him. To turn from your rebellion against the God who made you and loves you. Turn from living your way, that's what the Bible calls sin, and and turn to Jesus Christ, who in love laid down His life for His people. He not only predicted that He must suffer, but He actually did suffer. He laid his life down, and three days after his death, he was raised from the grave in victory over sin and death, proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And friend, if you want to know more about what it means to believe that Jesus suffered for you, and so saved you from the wrath that is to come in his return, then please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you about this good news about Jesus. Because Jesus knows His cross, His resurrection and ascension are in His future, He can definitively teach on His return, which is what He does in verses 26 through 37. In these verses, Jesus, He really kind of characterizes the nature of His return and presents us with, with warnings through historical figures and events. Jesus' return will be swift and sudden. It is comprehensive. And it is certain. This is how Jesus characterizes his return. Jesus first characterizes uh, the the judgment associated with this return as sudden and unexpected. That's the point of Jesus' historical analogy. Uh, Jesus calls to mind the minds of his hearers of the days of Noah and the flood. Uh, We we read it earlier. We're going to think about it later this evening uh, in our evening service. Uh, We're going to think about that from 5 o'clock to to 6 o'clock. And I encourage you to join us for that. But what we need to realize now about our passage is that Jesus effectively is effectively asking His hearers to remember how people were living in those days. Uh, they were living in great wickedness, as we read about earlier. The Genesis account tells us that God saw the earth was filled with wickedness and violence and corruption. Everyone was living in wickedness, and everyone was living without a care in the world. Uh, they certainly didn't care about the God who made them and called them to obey Him. They were going about all of the normal things that normal people do. Verse 27, they were were eating, drinking, and marrying, and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. You hear the force of that word, until, there in verse 27, everything was normal until everything and everyone was destroyed by water. Jesus continues with a second historical analogy in verse, uh, in verse 28 and 29. This time Jesus calls to mind God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't, Jesus, he didn't even have to name the place of God's judgment. All he had to do was mention Lot. That's how infamous God's swift and sudden judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah was. What happened at Sodom and Gomorrah was a lot like what happened in the days of Noah. Everyone was going about all the normal things that normal people do they were eating and drinking they were buying and selling planting and building and then they weren't for fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all Jesus judgment associated with his return will be swift and sudden it will also be total it will be comprehensive did you notice the appearance of that word all in Jesus double historical analogy verse 27 the flood came and destroyed them all skip down to verse 29 fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all so it will be on the day that the Son of Man is revealed no one will escape Jesus judgment just as all of those who do not have faith were judged in the days of Noah and Lot so all of those who do not have faith in Jesus will be judged when he is revealed From heaven. Friends, brothers and sisters, pause and take this in. There is not going to be anything special about Jesus, about the day of Jesus' return, apart from the fact that it will be the day of Jesus' return. It's going to be a day a lot like today, a normal day. In our day and age, Aren't people eating and drinking and marrying and being, giving and marrying, uh, marriage buying and selling, planting and building? Now, I'm guessing that there were a number of beautiful summer weddings yesterday. There are couples in our congregation who are preparing for weddings. Uh, I'm guessing that homes went on the market over the weekend, and I'm guessing that offers and contracts would be submitted today if they weren't submitted yesterday. Uh, Maybe we haven't seen much planting happening in northern Virginia, uh, but there's plenty of building here, right? Aren't things today going on just as they were in the days of Noah and Lot? Jesus' return will be swift and sudden. I wonder if if you notice that Jesus characterized his return also as certain. In verse 26, Jesus said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be. It will take place. Skip down to verse 30. Jesus says it again. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Just as God judged Noah's day, the people of Noah's day, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, so Jesus will be revealed from heaven to judge all unrighteousness and wickedness. Jesus' return in judgment is not a question of if he will return or what he will do in his return, it is only a matter of when. It will be unexpected. Except now that Jesus has mentioned it, we should expect that he could return any day, even today. But how will we respond when Jesus does return? Verse 31 and 32 call us to examine our hearts in preparation for the revealing of the Son of Man. For Jesus tells us that there will not be time to go and collect your belongings. In fact, even making an attempt to do so will reveal that your heart is more in love with this world, more at home in this world, than the king of this world, and desiring to be with the king of this world. That's why Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. She looked with longing on what she left behind, and she lost her life. She was judged with the people of the city. On that final day, not only will Jesus be revealed, but so will the love of your heart. So do you love Jesus? And do you long to be with Him? You know, verse 32, it might be the second shortest verse in all of the Bible, but it has a powerful message, doesn't it? in fact it's an imperative from Jesus we must remember Lot's wife remember the cost of loving your sin more than loving Jesus don't go back what you've left behind to follow Jesus will be destroyed don't be destroyed with it be warned Lot's wife is a reminder to us of the cost of loving this world more than loving Jesus of hearts that are not truly savingly united to Jesus hearts that are truly savingly united to Jesus can't live without Jesus but they can live without everything else in his book God is the gospel John Piper put the matter this way if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, like apple pie, and all the leisure leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? In that same book a little later, he would write, Christ did not die to forgive sinners, who would go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God and people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there watch out for worldliness consider the words of the Apostle John in 1st John chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 uh, sorry chapter 2 verses 15 to 16 he writes do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, that desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Consider what James says in James 4.4. 4. James writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In the time between... Jesus ascension when he went away to heaven and the time between his ascension and his return we have a choice to make Lot's wife and verse 33 makes that choice plain in trying to preserve or save your life or hold on to this life you're only going to lose it this shows us the vanity of the love of the world what you love most you lose, unless, of course, you love Jesus most. Only those who are willing to leave everything behind will not be left behind for judgment. Speaking of which, how are we to understand verses 34 and 35? Is this is this a kind of rapture? Well, yes and no. Uh, one of the things I think that we need to remember is that a decisive dividing line has been running through Jesus' teaching on his return. Noah and his family escaped judgment, but everyone else did not. Lot and his daughters escaped, but his wife and everyone else in Sodom and Gomorrah did not. Those who are taken are those who are gathered to Jesus. In that sense, sure, this is a rapture, a being caught up to be with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. But notice this being taken To be with Jesus, it is inseparably connected to the personal and public return of Christ. Moreover, it is inseparably related to his judgment. He has called it his day in verse 24 and the day of his revealing in verse 30. And it is on that day that the world will be judged just as it was in the days of Noah. On that day, on the day of the Son of Man, the world will be judged as it was in the days of Sodom. Jesus gathering His people to His side and His judgment upon those who have rejected Him take place on the same day. There will not be a gathering of God's people and then a kind of delay for an extended period of time only to be followed by Jesus' judgment sometime in the future. No, what Jesus teaches us here is that on the very same day that He takes His people, the righteous, to the new heavens and the new earth he will also take the wicked off to eternal judgment. In verse 37, we get the last nagging question from Jesus' hearers on this subject. Jesus has given us the who and the what and the when, and why, and how of the coming, but he didn't give us the where. Where is this judgment going to take place? It's interesting, isn't it, um, that Jesus points to the skies for this one. Uh, they had been looking to the skies for evidence of the coming of the kingdom. But Jesus pointing to the skies here occurs really through a proverb. And in fact, he somewhat kind of diffuses the dynamite that's contained in that question of where. Where is this judgment going to take place? Jesus' disciples ask that question. And Jesus' answers basically, you'll know it when you see it. Uh, you, you're not going to need anyone to point out to you the location of Jesus' return when he returns. You'll, you'll see it, just like you see uh, the, the vultures gathering where there's a corpse. The, the full and final coming of Jesus' kingdom will be swift, it'll be sudden, and it'll be seen by all. It is certain. But Jesus, from a, a, a human perspective, has certainly been gone a long time, hasn't he? Though Jesus didn't know the date or the hour of his return, he did know that his followers would be tempted to grow weary in the time between his ascension and his return. In order to encourage his disciples to believe and keep believing, he told them the parable that we have at the beginning of Luke chapter 18. So having considered the truth that the kingdom has come, is coming, let's turn now and consider our second point. Believe and keep believing. Read Luke chapter 18 verses 1 to 8 now. And he told them a parable to the effect And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Uh, Don't you just love verses like verse 1? I love verses like verse 1. Luke tells us why Jesus told this parable and what the goal of the parable was. How it was to be manifested in our lives as believers. Jesus told this parable to encourage us to pray and to keep praying. He told this parable because He knew that we would be tempted to lose heart. And all of this is connected to belief or faith as the conclusion of verse 8 makes plain. See, disciples pray and keep praying because prayer gives evidence Of a persistent persevering faith a faith that keeps going a faith that continues on prayer gives evidence that we believe and that we haven't stopped believing now if Jesus told this parable so that we would always pray then don't we have to ask ourselves do I always pray Christian do you do you give yourself to prayer do you prioritize prayer or do you prioritize other things? Now, now, here's a problem that I face as a pastor and preacher. Uh, those listening to the sermon could begin to feel guilty for their prayerlessness and so become discouraged. I, I certainly don't want to discourage you. I don't want you to lose heart. But here's the thing. Is my sense is, is that we will be more prone to lose heart if we do not pray. Here's the other challenge. Some of us really need to be convicted about our prayerlessness. And some of us need to repent of our prayerlessness. And by repenting of our prayerlessness, I mean that our prayerlessness needs to be changed to a prayerfulness. There are a number of reasons why we do not pray. Perhaps we've we've never been uh, taught to pray. Uh, And 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 I'd like to recommend a simple and short book. Look how thin that is. Simple and short book on uh, praying. It's entitled Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. It's a really fantastic book. Uh, We've probably given out more than 60 copies of it in this year alone. Uh, And it's a really helpful little book uh, to pray. I'd be happy to give this copy away to you. So if you want to find me at the door after the service, you can come and take this off my hands. It's less than 115 pages. It's really wonderful. It's practical. It will teach you how to pray. If you don't get to this copy before somebody else does, then go down to the library and check out a copy there. I think there are two copies there in the library. Uh, And if for some reason all of those copies are gone, let me know. I'll make sure one gets into your hands. And even in between that time, I think I'd encourage you to find another brother or sister in Christ who you are aware of that has a robust prayer life and ask them, Teach me to pray. How do, how do you pray? I, I want to learn to pray and then actually practice praying together. We should probably even do that if we already have the book and have already read it. Prayer is, is not complicated. It, it's simply talking to God about the things of His Word, the things that He lays on our hearts, the things that He's doing in our lives and the things that He's doing in our church. Maybe another reason why we don't give ourselves to the priority of prayer is because we find it boring, or or we don't feel like it is effective. We haven't seen many prayers answered, and so we've grown discouraged. But but if I had to kind of pinpoint the main reason for why we do not pray, then I think it's because we are proud. I, I fear that too many of us trust in our own strength. And friends, I've done it too. I've trusted in my own strength too. There will be times when I'm studying a passage of Scripture and I come to something I don't understand and I'll furiously search through theological dictionaries and commentaries and reference works and I'll suddenly realize I haven't asked for help. I, I, I haven't prayed. Why haven't I asked for help? Well, Because I was trusting in my, my own strength, in my own ability. I didn't pray and ask for help because I was trusting in my own intellect. And here's what makes that so terrible. I've known myself long enough to know that my intellect is not all that much to write home about. I need help in understanding God's Word. I need the help of the Spirit. I need I need help in so many other things too. I need to pray. Prayer is pleading with God for help. Prayer gives evidence of our faith because it displays that we are not depending upon ourselves, but depending upon God to supply our need. That is why prayer honors God. It reveals God to be our only hope, the only one who we can trust and depend upon. When you think about our temptation towards self-sufficiency, is it any wonder that prayer is connected to losing heart? In some ways, prayer is the antidote of losing heart. We can easily lose heart in this life, can't we? Jesus, He knows us all too well. This life may not be long, but it can be very hard. And Jesus knew that. His earthly life was short, and yet it was filled with suffering. He was rejected and mocked, He was belittled and dismissed, He was cursed and crucified. Jesus, He knows our experience. He knows that we may be tempted to lose heart while we wait for his coming. He knew that we might think to ourselves, you know, Jesus, you said you were coming back. And yet all of these injustices are swirling around us. Children unjustly lose their lives due to convenience. Our friends are, are unjustly subjected to racism. The poor are unjustly taken advantage of. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are being unjustly persecuted. Jesus, when will these injustices end? And it is to this kind of weariness that Jesus addresses this parable. It's a simple parable, but we've got to think about it carefully. Parables are stories in which things are placed together side by side, sometimes for analogy, sometimes for comparison, sometimes for contrast, for seeing the difference. Understanding parables requires wisdom and discernment, as they will often require us to place ourselves inside the parable. Jesus wants us to keep bringing our requests to God the Father, like that persistent widow. And if an unrighteous judge can do right out of selfish selfish motives, then how much more will God do right? Because He can do no wrong. One commentator rightly remarked, God is like the judge in that he hears the pleas of his children and vindicates them, but unlike the judge, he is not reluctant to do either. If an indolent, immoral judge finally does the right thing, how much more will God, who is compassionate and merciful, render justice to his children? He loves us. We are his children. He will answer our cries. So keep praying. Don't stop believing that our God in heaven is merciful, just, and good. Don't stop believing that He desires to hear the prayers of His children. One of the hardest things for me to remember is that while Jesus tells us in verse 8 that God will give His people justice speedily, one of the hardest things to remember is that speedily is defined by God. God the Father gets to determine the timetable for when He will send Jesus, the Son of Man, to return and judge the wicked and give justice to His children. It is hard to remember that our Father knows best. He is calling us to trust Him in His timing. And it may be best to understand this statement from Jesus in verse 8 as Leon Morris has. He writes, Jesus is speaking of the certainty of speedy action when the time comes. In other words, when the Son of Man returns. That emphasis on swiftness when the time for judgment comes aligns well with what Jesus said earlier in chapter 17. While injustice is primarily what is in Jesus' view here, there are other forms of suffering in our world and struggling in our world that we endure while we wait for Jesus' return. Perhaps disease is ravaging the body of your spouse or, or a loved one, a family member. Perhaps your adult children have rejected Jesus and the church. Uh, perhaps your family wants nothing to do with you because you've decided to follow Jesus. Perhaps you struggle to make ends meet. We may think to ourselves, Jesus, how many years... How many years how long do I have to pray for healing Jesus how long do I have to pray for the restoration of my brother and sister-in-law's marriage how long do I have to pray for my children to come to know you trust you and love you Jesus how, how long do I have to battle this discouragement and depression Jesus how long do I have to pray for strength to battle my sins and besetting sins And and this is where I'd like for us to conclude by thinking through these questions concerning our perseverance in the faith in light of Jesus' work on our behalf. The other day I heard a friend uh, say that maybe God uh, is actually glorified through years and years and years of His people praying. Maybe God is actually glorified by our years and years and years of prayer. When my friend said that, I I thought to myself, you know, I think he is right. God is glorified by a persistent, undying, unyielding faith. Sometimes he's pleased to answer our requests immediately. But sometimes calling us to entrust our cares, to entrust ourselves to him for an extended period of time, might be just the kind of work that He has to do in each of us to make us more like Jesus. It may be just the kind of work He has to do in us to fit us for heaven, to get us ready for worshiping Him and being with Him for all eternity. And I think that we must remember that Jesus Himself persisted through the darkest darkness. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. Peter said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile or return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So do you hear what Peter said of Jesus? That's what Peter said of Jesus. He said, Jesus, he continued. Jesus continued. He continued trusting, entrusting himself to the Father. The path of entrusting ourselves to the Father is the path that Jesus walked before us. He is not calling us to go somewhere where He Himself has not gone. He is not calling us to walk a path that He cannot understand, a path that He has not walked. No, while on earth, for us and for our salvation, Jesus continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted Himself to the Father all the way To the end and that is precisely what jesus calls for here as we await his return isn't that why he asks the question that he does in verse 8 when the son of man comes will he find faith on earth when not if when jesus comes again will he find faith in your heart Will he find you continuing to entrust yourself to your faithful creator? Will he find you believing and persisting in faith? Brothers and sisters, as we endeavor to walk in the wilderness of this world, beat down by injustice and broken by disappointment and struggle, let us remind one another that the new creation has broken into this dark and sin-filled world. The joy of the eternal kingdom has come and the king and his kingdom are coming so believe and keep believing let's pray together